Hi everyone. Today on the podcast, we're going to be speaking with Stella Zhang, who is a PhD candidate at George Mason University. Her research focuses on the political impact of China's overseas development assistance and the global expansion of Chinese SOEs. Previously, Stella worked for five years as an overseas correspondent for Tyson Media in London and DC. Hi, Stella, and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's my pleasure. So, I think I want to start before we kind of get into the new uh, de- uh, development finance white paper. I want to start a bit before that and kind of discuss mm-hmm. your your paper on IC. Um, ICECs as international contracting and engineering. Sorry, international construction and engineering contracting from the Chinese side.、Mm-hmm. And I, what do you mean when you say there's like a aid contracting nexus into the Chinese foreign aid? Yeah,、um, the reason why I wrote that paper is that I I found there's very interesting connection between China's foreign aid practices and. And this industry, which is very dominant in in the international contracting um, world, um, and I found that、um, one what what I meant by the nexus is the first thing is、um, this contracting industry, ICEC industry, was very much rooted in China's foreign aid practices back in the Maoist times. Um, so many of the major ICECs had their predecessors as the foreign aid offices of China's、um, line ministries. For example, Ministry of Railway, Ministry of Transportation, things like that. And some of them were the foreign aid ministries of the subnational governments, the provincial or municipal governments. And so, because back at that time,、um, before the 1980s,、um, there was very limited international economic activities、uh, that China was engaged in, and one major activity was providing foreign aid to other countries in the form of、um, turnkey projects. So building a, a factory, building small bridge or roads for other countries, things like that. So that's why、um, you know China has these foreign aid offices in various line ministries that were、uh, responsible for these kind of activities. So they were、um, carrying on, carrying out the the construction activities. And later on, when China started economic reform. And these foreign aid offices、uh, were transformed into enterprises, and they started to be、uh, started to engage in international contracting businesses,、um, and and that's how that that was the the origin of this industry, and gradually they they became、um, a very large industry、um, thanks to various of state support that China、uh, provided.、Um, Along the way,、um, so this so this is the the first thing I meant by this by eight、uh, contracting nexus, and 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 I also want to highlight that the, the development of this this industry has been in part facilitated by China's foreign aid policies. 
So in the 80s and starting from the 80s, it was、um, an explicit state policy that、uh, to encourage the development of this industry because this industry is supposed to, you know, help with China,、uh, help with China's internationalization of its、um, heavy industries, exporting Chinese、um, labor, Chinese、um, industrial products and technology. Um, so foreign aid as one source of finance、uh, was used to facilitate、um, uh, this industry as well. Foreign aid not not just as a source of finance, but also as you know economic diplomacy to help these companies to open up markets in other countries. So so there's that connection too. And so what I try to say is just that there's、um, you know this. Very intimate relationship between China's economic diplomacy and, and all the commercial pursuits.、Um, and nowadays, I think these、uh, ICECs, these contracting in- companies, have become such a、uh, prominent, such prominent players in the international markets, and and they are engaged in all kinds of、um, infrastructure product、uh, projects. And so the they they come to, they have come to define the image of China in many of、uh, the developing countries. They define China's engagement in in development, which is with with a very f- heavy focus on infrastructure projects. So that's the reason why I want to bring all this out、um, through this paper. There was an. Interesting policy shift that happened in China around 2003 that you highlighted the Daizi, the bring your bring your financial resources policy. What was the context in which that happened?、Um, so I think around that time it was discovered that、um, many developing countries where China Chinese companies were trying to go to. Um, they lack the finance, financial resources、um, to build the projects that they would like to build,、uh, infrastructure or other industrial projects. So I think it, it then it,、uh, the the companies、um, the was telling the governments that we now see that this、uh, major bottleneck for us to. Um, ex- to to develop new markets. So, is there anything the government can do? And that's why、um, I think there's this policy、um, from the government to to encourage、uh, Chinese financial institutions to provide finance、um, for these companies to go abroad to, to provide the, the appropriate financial、uh, facilities or instruments,、um, such as.、Um, You know,、uh, export credits, things like that. So yeah, I think that the context was that it was discovered that the lack of finance was a major issue for other countries、um, to to really embark on those kind of projects that Chinese companies would like to build or would like to be contracted. So so that's why. Does this happen with other countries when they do, you know, foreign aid, foreign finance, or this、uh, uniquely Chinese style foreign policy? Um, maybe it's not that unique because we can see it in the case of、um, Japan and Korea, their finance, their 
foreign aid, um, at least um, for some period, was also quite explicitly supporting their companies um, to to open up new markets and to build projects and to and export their capital. So in essence, it's not that unique, but maybe the scale of um, how China has been using this and continues to use this uh, to support its industry, um, this uh, international contracting industry is quite um, unique in that sense, just the scale of it. Okay, so what is the exact mechanics of this happening? So the Chinese company wants to build a, a dam or a road in Latin America and they will go to the bank themselves in China to get the money, but the government in, let's say, uh, Peru or Barbados, they don't actually do the paperwork for the loan themselves? Um, So uh, officially, for the foreign aid concessional loan, and I think to some extent also the, the export credit, preferential buyer's export credit, they're... It needs the the borrower technically has to be the the host government, so the host government has to sign the final uh, loan agreement, right? But in practice, um, usually it's the Chinese companies that initiate these projects and they identify mm. this this source of uh, finance because um, the companies. One, they have been encouraged by the Chinese government to use all these various kinds of financial resources to support their projects overseas. So um, very legitimately for them, they see that um, the foreign aid concessional loan and the preferential buyers export credits are two of the sources that can be used. And usually they are, they are quite big um, in terms of the amount that can, can be used. So, so they would go to the policy banks in China and also go to Chinese government, uh, you know, including the embassies or the foreign ministry or, or various other um, authorities. And they will kind of lobby for this kind of project, especially if they can make a good case that such projects could be used to enhance bilateral relations. Um, if they can argue that, you know, this dam in, in certain country, in the Caribbean country, is very, very much needed in that country. As part of the government's development strategy, they can make a good case out of, you know, the, 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 the development purpose of such project. And also make a good case that this, by implementing this project, it could um, benefit the bilateral political relations, then um, then the policy bank would consider that uh, under the uh, you consider this project under the, the foreign aid arrangement or under the preferen- preferential export buyers um, arrangement. So, um, so the short answer is that yes, the technically the borrower is the the host government, um, but in practice, um, usually it's the companies that are driving this process. Right, and to me that brings up the one of the, I guess, big concerns people have with, with the practice itself. So I, I spoke to someone else, I think you also mentioned in your writing, that the risk analysis 
that the policy banks can do is very, very limited because they actually don't have any underground insight, let's say in the Caribbean, for example, of what's actually going on or what's being actually needed or what the government can actually afford. It's, it kind of rely upon the companies to kind of do that. Uh, is this changing in, in China where they're they're trying to have more oversight in how these companies operate outside of China? Yes, definitely. I think it's um, the, the the bank, the policy banks, and as well as the government. I think they do realize this is an issue. You can't just rely on the companies to do the, um, the you know the the physical studies for you, or because there is clear conflict of interest. The companies want the projects, and so I think. Uh, there's always been the, the, the attempt and the efforts to strengthen uh, the capacity of the policy banks of the, all the regu- regulatory bodies within the government um, to oversee um, these projects. And um, But um, I don't know enough specifics about it. Um, I think... So far, it seems to me that the, the policy bank, the, especially the Export-Import Bank of China, um, their capacity is still quite limited. They, they don't have many overseas branches, so they probably will have to rely on you know temporary teams traveling from one country to another to another to do the assessments. And so, in that sense, I think there's clear clearly a gap between the capacity of the policy bank. And the capacity of the companies who you know submit these loan proposals and, and things like that. So uh, it's there's still a mismatch between what the bank um, can do and what it wants to do. I think. Hmm. Yeah. And there was a a very interesting argument I read by the. Chinese economist uh, Chang Cheng, yes. who did a lot of research on Chinese investment in Africa in particular. And he reframed the debt trap conversation to a, a different one that I found quite, 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 quite good. He explained similarly that it is the firms, the Chinese firms that go out into the world to find projects. When they find projects, they then more or less supply finance for these projects. But these same firms don't have that much care, you know, broadly construed onto how the fiscal performance of the domestic economies are in the developing countries. But it's, it's the firms and not the Chinese government that that kind of supply the finance. So it's not the government of China that trapping the, the countries. It's more the firms, what he calls an ethics trap not caring enough about the fiscal performance of the country and only caring about how much projects they can build. So it's more of an ethics trap in his uh, argument, not a debt trap. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I basically agree with that analysis. I mean, I agree that there's the dynamics more driven by the Chinese companies going to um, markets that they are not necessarily familiar with. 
um, and then that resulted in very undesirable um, outcomes of the projects. I mean, just by nature of these projects, because these companies were in uh, were involved in in the contracting of the construction only, right? They what their concern was only they could finish the the projects in time and deliver projects, um, quality control and quality guarantee, and and their concern was purely on in that phase only. So whether the project, whether it's a, it's a road project, it's a toll road, or it's a dam, whether they would be um, uh, beneficial in the long term, um, it's hardly their concern, just by the nature of the, their business, right? So, and combined with the, the really um, lack of experience of most of the Chinese companies, um, in the overseas markets, because we need to know that most of Chinese companies only start to uh, be involved in, in international activities in starting from 90s or 2000s. So they're still relatively new. Um, so I don't want to put much on the, yeah, it, it can be ethics. I mean, these companies, when they go to overseas market, they should have this kind of corporate social responsibility um, considerations. So that's ethics. But on the other hand, it's also because of their lack of experience. Um, they, they, they need to learn the lessons. And, and so I agree with the, the analysis that you're mentioning that this is not, you know, the Chinese government coming in with a very malicious intention to trap, to entrap other countries by through the, the loans. It's more about companies coming in with a very narrow focus on pursuing their commercial interests and, and lack of consideration of all other cons- uh, consequences that resulted in, in, you know, a lot of projects that were not feasible or not um, economically viable in the long term, but the construction of these projects um, resulted in a heavy debt of the host government. That that's a consequence. Yeah, a little bit un, an unintended consequence, I would say. Mm. And there are two financial instruments in particular that we've kind of mentioned before implicitly here, Mm -hmm. the FACLs and the PBECs. And from your paper, you made the point that you should not conflict these two instruments in particular because you would misunderstand what the policy implication is and why the laws are being made in the uh, from China to the domestic economies. So before we go on, could you disentangle what the FACL versus PBCs are and why is it important to not conflate them when we're having a broader policy conversation? So um, FACL is Foreign Aid Concessional Loan um, and then PBEC is Preferential Buyers Export Credit. Um, So these two financial instruments were fairly similar um, in the sense that they were all, you know, uh, they offer interest rates that's more preferable than market rates, so uh, lower than market rates. And also they have been used to finance Chinese um, overseas projects. And also the, the borrower is the host government. 
Um, so in, in those sense, they were very similar. Um, but the only technical difference is that one, uh, the foreign aid concessional loan is issued in RMB, but the, um, the, the preferential buyers export credits are issued in US dollar. So in practice, uh, when we talk about the companies trying to draw the various resources to finance their projects, they, they, they see these two things, um, basically the same, I would say. They are both sponsored, you know, provided by the Chinese governments, uh, provided by the state financial institutions. They serve both, you know, economic and, and diplomatic purposes. Um, so from the company's point of view, these are, uh, these are quite similar. But from analytical point of view, from, for, you know, observers of Chinese foreign policy, I think it's uh, necessary to distinguish the two because only the foreign aid concessional loan um, falls into the, the official definition or official categories of Chinese foreign aid. So let me recap. Chinese foreign aid includes grants and interest-free loans and foreign aid concessional loan. So three type. And so grants and f- and interest-free loans are provided um, through the budget for f- through the government budget, but the foreign aid concessional loan is subsidized. Is th- the difference is here is subsidized by the uh, government budget uh, um, for its interest, but the the fund the principal's uh, funds are raised through the financial market by ex Exim Bank itself. So, um, and also this foreign aid concessional loan was an innovation, um, back in, in the 19, uh, I think early 1990s, um, to supplement the foreign aid budget that China had, um, because just by only subsidizing the interest, um, it could, um, really amplify the, the amount of resources China would be able to mobilize. You know, through the financial market, so it was uh, innovation at, at that time, and the the export credits, the preferential export buyers export credits, was much later. It came into the picture much later. I think in the two, early 2000s, it was innovation from on the part of Asian Bank itself that it discovered that this uh, kind of or the Chinese government discovered that you can also use export credit to to finance some of the projects. But at the same time, serve um, diplomatic purposes. Um, and in terms of the regulation and supervision of these two financial instruments, they also fall into uh, fall under the jurisdiction of different departments within the Chinese uh, government. So only the the foreign aid concessional loan would be um, super, supervised and regulated by the foreign aid um, the, the relevant foreign aid agencies and departments um, in the Chinese ministries, but the but the preferential buyers as for credits will not. So um, so that's why I think the former the, the the concessional loan would be more directly directly but the but the but the export buyers credits would not. So that's that's a distinction. For foreign policy analysis I think it's important to make that distinction. Even though from the 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 political economic point of view, they serve very similar purposes. Yes.
Mm-hmm. Okay, so now this brings us into the new white paper that China published literally last month of, of this year. And it's a China's International Development Corporation in the New Era. And you framed it as a landmark document. Um, before we get into details, I guess I guess that's the same question. But why is it such a landmark document to to, to you know a casual observer? Hey, it's, it's not a white paper from China. It did do it all the time. Um, so I think that this this new white paper is a landmark document because it's it really first of all it uses the new term international development cooperation instead of just foreign aid. So it signals that China is now um, ready to articulate a new concept, uh, a much broader concept that um, involves both foreign aid in a narrow sense and other type of um, development engagement um, to uh, articulate its, its approaches to um, to the field of in this field of international development, um, and also this document um, provides all these uh, philosophical and norm- normative foundations for China's uh, international development cooperation, and also its uh, approaches, uh, its focus, its emphasis on you know endogenous development. And also, it's um, it's it's willingness to participate in multilateral um, institutions co- to work with um, all these existing multilateral institutions in the field of international development. Um, so I think overall, I think this white paper also strikes a very confident tone, like China's kind of now ready to present itself, present its. Uh, its its unique approaches. Um, now China believes that it it has found the the approach that works best for itself and also works best for other countries. Um, that China doesn't need to you know defend its foreign aid um, practices like it was kind of uh, kind of has to do before. So yeah, in, in many senses, I think this this document is going to be uh, for future historians. This document will be a very important one to study. Mm. And mm, on the you mentioned the philosophical, you know, orientation. There, there's a line that you or a, a, a phrase that you point out. From the document, I Chinese Virgin, Dong Chui the Li Guan, where you kind of highlight this is actually a pretty unique thing that the government actually saying now, right, in the white paper, and it also has this very deep Confucian background in it. So, I guess, I guess firstly, is it is it more the case that the government is trying to use Confucianism as this new rhetorical strategy, or if they Policy-wise, do have a very bit deep, a deep interest in actually putting forward this kind of framing to the world. I guess very similar to how 
in, there's this same skepticism in like you know early American not early American, like Cold War Cold War foreign policy where it's like hey are we do we really have this moral superiority and moral suasion we want to push into the world are they only a cover for some like you know some very bare capitalistic uh, tendency. Yeah, for me, it seems to me this is still more rhetoric than uh, reality, um, because um, one is still very vague what uh, what the Chinese leaders mean by saying that um, putting e or, or greater good uh, ahead of interest ahead of e. So and and also. It just uh, to me, it just doesn't seem like this is going to change any of the uh, the dynamics that we were describing earlier. The dynamics about you know the companies are still um, in many cases driving the the processes, and the economic interests uh, will still be a major consideration of China's um, international development engagements. Um, I mean. The whole idea of, you know, the white paper also talk about international development cooperation need to serve um, China's Belt and Road because, you know, Belt and Road Initiative is actually has been becoming an overall framework to guide China's international economic relations that China's, you know, involvement in other countries development is also supposed to facilitate China's own structural uh, reforms at home, China's own need to upgrade its infrastructure, uh, industrial structure. So, um, so in those senses, I, I don't think there's any change in the, uh, or any significant change in the, in the practical considerations, you know, how these, uh, the projects will be conceived, how they will be, uh, implemented in that sense. But that now the new thing is that the, the, the political leadership, uh, Xi Jinping has come to use this kind of confusion concept to frame China's approach, to give it a kind of, uh, you know, the moral, moral framing. So I think this is a way the Chinese political leadership has uh, to, uh, for the Chinese political leadership to legitimize this approach with a very unique Chinese traditional cultural concept. Um, uh, and also, I think, gives it a ring of, you know, Chinese exceptionalism. But uh, to me, it sounds more like rhetoric uh, than, you know, any substantive um, change as far as I can see. One of the other things that was mentioned in the white paper that was pretty interesting was the idea of endogenous growth. <laughs> you know, that, that fun term to use in this context. Um, this is very interesting to Caribbean because in Caribbean, one of the big... Uh, issues is a capacity constraint when it comes to industrialization. And it would seem that one of the things that in the going forward in China's foreign and foreign development finance is this ability or willingness, I guess I'll say, to help the capacities of these developing countries as well. Not also not sure how they would do that or you know implementation wise, but do you ha- do you have a, a sense of what that would actually look like, or what that, what that even means um, in the context of these this new you know orientation towards development of finance in a broader idea? 
Yeah, so this I also found this endogenous development concept very, very interesting um, because I think this is this thing has been again this has this is a a concept that has been uh, developed through uh, or based on earlier ideas back in mouse times because at that time uh, the terms that were used were you know self reliance so china's approach to uh, cooperate with other countries was to help other countries to develop their own capacity to to develop so that they they would not need to rely on other countries especially the western the post colonial powers in their own development so so this idea has been there um uh, but nowadays it's given a new name in a more you know internationally uh recognized uh term um so I think in terms of the practice, what China would do, what this concept would entail in practice, um, as mentioned in the white paper, China mentioned, uh, uh, laid out a few things. One is um, to provide trainings to other countries. This is something that China has been doing for a long time, actually, since the since the 80s. China has started to provide trainings to um, mainly for the African countries, for their government officials. Um, it's more the training is more technocratic, I would say, more about you know how you manage uh, agriculture, how you manage certain industries, um, and this kind of thing. Um, but in recent years, I have noticed that such trainings has also uh, have also involved uh, topics such as China's governance system, China's political system. So it becomes a little bit more political nowadays. Um, so yeah, training is one big thing that China has been doing for a long time, and, and I, I imagine in the Caribbean context, China will also uh, provide more trainings. As well as you know, other kinds of scholarships for you know Caribbean students to go to study in China, um, this kind of thing. And another thing I think is very interesting uh, is that China provides aid or assistance in in development planning for other countries. So one example that was mentioned in the white paper was Grenada. Uh, China provide or China uh, help with Grenada's the long term development planning. And, and I think the draft was submitted in 2017. So this is quite significant if, if you think of it, if, um, you know, China's provided the overall thinking for how the ch- country should develop in the long term. And that planning document was supposedly would become a blueprint, uh, for, for the country to, to design, to, to develop its uh, more specific uh, development plans and strategies. So uh, that's a very profound uh, impact if that that development planning was put into practice. So um, so so the two things I would say, um, and also a third thing, technology. I think China also now talks a lot about technology technology transfer. So in areas where China considers it has advantage, including in the IT sector and also in some other, uh, you know, farming technology, farming technology and, and also more specific technologies in the industries um, where China considers that it has uh, it, it has an advantage. It would try to promote uh, the transfer or the application of such technologies in other countries. So these are a few things that China um, um, frame with the term in, in 
endogenous development because China uh, it is in a way this concept is in contrast to the the very idea that development finance is the main content of development assistance because development finance basically is about transfer or redistribution of capital so putting capital um, transferring capital from the the rich countries to poorer countries so that capital as an as an input um, uh, to supplement the, the their country uh, these poor countries capital input so that they would grow it's it's more a, a it's a thinking in the in your in the neoclassical economics but this endogenous development concept would be more about you know helping the countries or you know as as or at least china thinks that helping these countries to develop their own um technology uh capacity technological capacity and government's capacity so that they would be able to better um mobilize uh, their resources, um, better use their resources for their own development. So this actually represents a very interesting, a different kind of economic thinking. And in terms of the the potential of this endogenous growth in the Caribbean in particular, so you have this project called Jamaica Eye, which is of course in Jamaica, where the National Security Ministry of Jamaica, the government in general, has set up this surveillance system, the CCTV countrywide surveillance system. It, it's it's not completely full fleshed out as yet, but it's, it's definitely developed where they're trying to monitor crime, uh, monitor um, areas in the country to reduce crime. And one of the really unfortunate facts about Jamaica is that it's the third highest suicide rate, sorry, third highest homicide rate in the world is, is Jamaica. And so the government has this big issue. So right now, I, as far as I'm aware, there's no explicit information that the CCTV surveillance tech that the Jamaican government use is Chinese or Chinese built. But it would make sense if the government of Jamaica has already attempt, attempting to do this plan and China has advanced surveillance systems and they have this financial strategy to help governments do their own internal growth projects. You can see the logic behind Jamaican partnership with China, Jamaican government partnership with Chinese surveillance firms and uh, surveillance finance from Chinese loans. Uh, I think that's probably something that's going to develop a lot more in the next few years. Yeah, yeah. I suspect it's also one of the more controversial areas because on the one hand, China can frame it as kind of, as development, as you know, enhancing these countries' capacity to um, maintain stability and and policing this kind of thing. Um, but on the other hand, people are very very suspicious of you know Chinese technology in, in the surveillance space. Uh, I believe, yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the other things you you mentioned uh, in in your writing was the potential clash with the very old and known Chinese policy of non-interference, where that that might have to wane a bit in this new um, system where the Chinese firms and so forth have to actually more engaged in the actual local economy. 
And so could, could you kind of ask them what was your thought process behind that, 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 that idea? Yeah, so uh, I feel that this is kind of inevitable development as the Chinese companies um, change or shift their their business model. Because I talk about that in the paper, because in the past um, few decades, the, the business model has been, you know, the EPC model, so contracting model, the Chinese companies come in, they build the projects, and then the contract's finished, and then they go. Um, so they have much little uh, consideration or that they needed, they didn't need to think so much about the long-term impact of their project. But because now the EPC model is almost coming, uh, maybe not yet coming to an end, but it's more and more difficult to implement this model because um, many of these countries are highly indebted. It's no longer possible for them to borrow a lot of money from China. So the, it's, so the companies are starting to think about, you know, they need to come in as investors, as equity investors. So they will invest in these projects rather than, you know, having the host government borrow the money from China to hire them to build a project, if you see the difference. So, um, as, so as investors, they need to consider, they really need to consider how this project will be viable in the long term and what kind of, um, how they can also, uh, and they need to be able to understand the local politics, the local social economic conditions to be able to design uh, and initiate these projects. So inevitably, they will have to be much more um, entangled in, in the local politics and so on. So in this sense, I think it would also change the dynamics between the Chinese government and, and the other countries' governments. Um, because if the Chinese government is, it can, it will continue to, wants to continue to support these industries, as I believe it does, um, they would have to think about how to help with, uh, how, help these companies to um, better integrate uh, in the local environments. And um, so, um, a few things that I've noticed is that, um, for example, China has now, uh, China is very active now in engaging with other countries, um, uh, non-ruling parties, let's say. So there's a lot of party diplomacy going on between the Chinese Communist Party and various political parties in other countries because China has realized that in the past it only engaged with the ruling party, but once election happens, once the, the power changes hands, um, the Chinese, oftentimes, um, Chinese projects, uh, were cancelled or there are all kinds of, um, um, problems, um, uh, involved with, with the projects that were promised by pro previous governments. So, so China realized that. So now it wants to be able to engage with the, you know, various stakeholders in, in host countries. And, and I mean, it's still a, a learning process, I, I would say, still in the early stage and still trying to see what's the best way, um, to do these things. But it has, what, what's clear is that China has realized that its past approach, uh, was problematic for many reasons. So it wants to broaden its, um, you know, interlocutors, 
not just with the the, the specific government in power, but also various other um, political groups and and things like that. But I think China still is very cautious not to be seen as directly intervening in in the politics, in the electoral politics, and things like that. But uh, the the idea is, you know, be able to talk to talk to um, various stakeholders and and collect as much information as possible um, and prepare for various scenarios. Um, and also about the non the, the the shift in the non interference principle was also that China also sees the importance of um, engaging with civil society. Because um, in the past, many of the projects, the companies, Chinese companies, were not um, very used to um, enga- engaging with civil society groups, and, and still so. I think that's still the case. But now um, there's uh, increasing understanding that you know if you want to build a project, you need to. Uh, talk to local communities. You need to be able to communicate with um, various civil society groups that are monitoring these projects, um, at least for PR purposes. So I think there are that kind of um, changes going on. Also, thank you so much, Stella, for coming on the podcast. I think the nuance in this conversation should add a lot of color to the discussions going forward. Yeah, thank you so much. And these are very good questions.